can anybody tell me what Christmas is all about? And and I want to I want to continue that, and and uh, I want to continue reading, and we're going to read again um, the passages that are the basis for what we understand about the birth of Jesus. And the thing I found about these passages. As many times as I read through them, there's always something more. There's something uh, very, very powerful to be found every single time. And I want to begin uh, again in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2, starting in verse 8. And it says, In the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, And they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. And I also want to read from Matthew chapter 2, the story of the Magi. It says this, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men, from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose, went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you that this season and this, this scripture, this, these, this word from your, from your Bible, Lord God, is not just sentiment. It goes so much deeper than that. And we ask that you would open our eyes as David prayed, 
that we might see beautiful things in your word. Help us to have ears to hear, a heart to understand and receive and to submit to your truth. And we pray it in Jesus' name. And everybody said, you know, um, how many love Christmas food? How many like sweets, Christmas sweets, right? So um, when I was a kid, uh, I took Christmas cookies for granted. Um, I just took them for, you know, Christmas cookies and everything else. And, you know, you have a, a table with all the food on it and you have um, different Christmas sweets there. And it always seemed to me that uh, like a Christmas cake or a pie or something that was, it seemed to have a kind of a more glorious presentation than a plate of Christmas cookies. But I had to get married um, to understand the error of my ways. How many have been schooled by marriage in a number of ways? So I had to get married uh, to understand and, and have my wife uh, sort of teach me, and part of this had to do with now I wasn't just eating the Christmas cookies, now I was participating in their fabrication, right? And so as I was making Christmas cookies, Christmas cookies are uh, complicated little, little guys, right? I mean, every single one of them has got to be watched carefully, and uh, you've got to get the chemistry just right on all of them. I, I mean, uh, it was, for me, anyway, my perspective, I came to the conclusion, but anybody can bake a cake, but making Christmas cookies to turn out right, they're very, very labor-intensive, especially some of the specialty cookies of the season. Uh, they're very labor-intensive, and uh, sometimes it can be difficult to get them right. There are certain ingredients that you just have to have according to the type of cookie that it is, right? So, um, of course, everybody knows that a sugar cookie is just a sugar cookie, but you have to have those red and green sprinkles on it to make it a Christmas cookie. How many know what I'm talking about? I mean, sugar cookies are all year long. I mean, but if you're going to a Christmas party and somebody just has sugar cookies there, you're like, wow, it's sugar cookies. Where are the red and green sprinkles? Well, they were, we were out of them or we couldn't find them or something. Uh, it's just not the same. Um, uh, I like snickerdoodles. Anybody else like snickerdoodles? Um, snickerdoodles are a great cookie, but if you don't have cream of tartar in your uh, cupboard, they're just not going to turn out right. Uh, when I first married Patty, she had a, I think we still have that cookie book. We've got a book, it's all cookies, and there was a particular cookie in there that called for chestnut paste, right? It's a puree of chestnut. Uh, now you can get anything on Amazon. You can get any brand you want, but at the time, um, that was a covet, highly coveted and very rare ingredient uh, to get, and uh, we had to search high and low, and uh, a lot of times we just couldn't find it, so we couldn't make the chestnut cookies. You can't make chestnut cookies if you don't have chestnut. So uh, I'm, I'm thinking this morning about missing ingredients, missing ingredients. How many have come to the end of a Christmas season and you feel a little bit like Charlie Brown. You feel a little bit like something just got past me. Right? Like there's a lot of busyness, there was a lot of stuff, but something, it seems like I missed something. It seems like I missed out on something blessed. And, and uh, this is an important message for me, um, and if it's not to you, I just ask you to humor me and, 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 and go along with me on it. But I feel strongly that missing ingredients 
for a successful Christmas time are commonly beauty, joy, and wonder. Beauty, joy, and wonder. So we're asking, what is Christmas all about? Last week I spoke about light. This week I'm speaking about beauty, joy, and wonder. I believe that in its essence, at its core, Christmas is supposed to be about those things. It's supposed to include those things. And it's one of the reasons I showed this clip from one of my favorite uh, Christmas uh, specials when I was a kid, uh, The Little Drummer Boy, because I think this clip in particular puts its finger on those special ingredients. This little boy is a legend, of course, a beautiful legend, gives rise to that famous Christmas carol, but you've got him seeing the beauty of the Lord and experiencing wonder. And through that comes joy. And the passages that I read that are the classic Christmas passages are saturated with beauty, joy, and wonder. If you just quickly giving him another, another glance in Luke chapter 2, it says the angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them. That's the beauty of God. The glory of God shines out upon them. And then, and then uh, uh, the angel makes an announcement. The angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy. There's joy in there. And then uh, at the end of it, after they go and tell the story and they're spreading it abroad, which I'm going to talk about later in the month, it says, and all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds said wondered the word there that's really a good translation uh there's wondering about something like gee i wonder if like we're questioning something that's not the word the word in greek is thaumatso it means like wow they were wowed in not a natural sense but in a deep spiritual sense by what they heard from the shepherds because the shepherds were spilling out the wonder that they had experienced. You have to read the story. There's wonder. That's why the angel has to say, don't be afraid. They're, they're taking care of their sheep and all of a sudden the glory of God splits the sky and the, and the dark of night is illuminated brilliantly and it's, it's a wondrous thing. The whole thing is wondrous. There's this prophetic word that comes from the angel about the sign and they go and it's exactly as it's been told to them and there's all this incredible thing. There's wonder that is happening. And then you, you go over the story of the Magi and it's very, very similar. They see a star. They see a star. They see a star in the night. And these are, these are Gentiles. They're not Jews. They're, they're astronomers. They're stargazers. And, and, and the pages of history tell us that there were exactly such people. And they saw, and there's different theories, probably what you had going on was you had, you had a constellation, you had a, a particular alignment of stars or planets that happened at a particular time and formed one brilliant star that lit up the night sky. And it was amazing to them, and it caught their attention, and there's beauty to it. And they were drawn to it. And you look in verse 10 of chapter 2 of Matthew, it says, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy 
There is tremendous joy as they saw this. These passages are filled with beauty, with joy, and with wonder. But I want to I tell you something. These things are often lost on us. They're often lost on us at Christmas time and at other times. And I, look, you know, I'm a theologian. I can break down the text. I can tear it apart. I can talk about the, uh, the subtleties of different meaning of these different things. I can, you know, I can go head to head and carry out a theological argument with people, uh, even about these passages. One of the first uh, papers that I wrote when I was a seminarian uh, in a New Testament class was a, uh, was a paper, was a study of these passages, what, what, what we call the birth narratives. And I'm, I'm, I was fascinated by them, and I, I, I got into all the studying and the tearing of it apart. But I want to tell you right now, we can have all our, our I's dotted and our, our T's crossed, but if we miss beauty, joy, and wonder, we've missed it. We've missed it at Christmas time. Because it's the essence of it. The essence of it is being carried away. This is something that, that we see in children. You know, it's one thing to have Christmas. It's another thing to have Christmas with children. Right? Why is it that Christmas with children is so wonderful? Because children are innocent. And children still have their antenna working to be able to pick up beauty, joy, and wonder. Because beauty, joy, and wonder is something that is transmitted by the love of God and by the Spirit of God. And children pick it up. And we who are adults, we look and we, we see it, we enjoy it as reflected in their faces, as reflected in their eyes. It's a very similar thing, but entirely in the natural. Uh, we lived in Southern California for four years. You, I mean, you go to Disneyland and you, after a couple times, you've been there, you've seen it, right? You've been through it. But what's really great is somebody visits you and you take them there for the first time and then they, you would get to enjoy it all over again because you see it in them. Why is it that children have it and why is it so often that adults, even Christian adults, even devout adults, miss the beauty, the joy, and especially the wonder of the season? Well, I want to tell you, the ability to perceive these virtues and these blessings from God is lost through sin. Our beauty, joy, and wonder receptors get burned out. Now, we're all sinners, and that alone could settle it. But, but I'm not just talking about sins my sins or your sins. I'm talking about sin in the world. I'm talking about the effect of living in a fallen world. It's sad. It's tragic. But even Christians get cynical. We get tired in our spirit. We get tired of the battle. 
We get tired of disappointments. We get tired of what we perceive to be unanswered prayers. We get tired of, of other people, even who claim to be Christian, hurting us. And we see people get hurt. And there's bruises and there's bumps and there's things that are going on in the world that are just painful. And we go through the grind of time. And it's just, it's difficult. You know, we had a little uh, song playing before the service I'll Be Home for Christmas, originally sung in 1943 by, by Bing Crosby, right? Deliberately sung during World War II because it was about soldiers wishing and dreaming they could come back. How many are familiar with that story of that song, I'll Be Home for Christmas? And it's one of those things, it's, it's, a, it's a beautiful song, it's a traditional seasonal song, but it's a, it's a sad song. It's a sad song. My dad told me the story. I remember when I was just a kid, he told me a story of a family uh, where he grew up in St. Louis, Missouri, where they, they, told their, they told their son, they told him by correspondence, hey, we won't, we won't take down the Christmas tree until you come home. It was, it was Christmas season of 1944. We'll never, well, we won't take the tree down until you get home. And everybody expected that to happen. And then the terrible Battle of the Bulge happened, and so many soldiers were killed, and their son was one of the ones who didn't make it. And what they did was they stayed true to their word, and they left that tree up, and the tree died, and all the needles fell off, and it was just a bare tree in a corner of their living room as a monument to their dead son. That's a tragedy, and I'm, you know, even as a child, I thought that's a terrible thing. That's a terrible thing for them to have done, to have insisted that they keep that word because it, it means there's an open wound in their life that they're not allowing to be healed. And until their dying day, old and gray, they left that, 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 that dead tree up. But, you know, that's an extreme uh, uh, illustration of what everybody to one extent or another experiences because the world is hard. And life is hard. You say, well, this is, this is, pastor, this is a crazy Christmas message. The whole point of Christmas is that a child of hope came Amen. to illuminate our darkness. The old hymn, uh, God bless ye, merry gentlemen. I love that hymn. It's an old hymn. It's mentioned, if you, if you read the, actually read the original story of Christmas Carol, the, the lines of that song are mentioned. He saved us all from Satan's power. That's the Jesus that came. That's the Jesus that was born. He's not just some little sentimental doll that we put up in our yard with some Christmas lights. He's a warrior child who came to set us free and meet us in our situation where we are. Notice who it is who experiences the joy and the wonder. It's not a little drummer boy in the text. It's men who've lived hard lives, who've experienced difficult things, but they experience joy and wonder. God wants to bring it to us. How do we regain it? How do we get our receptors back? Because we need to. You know, it's sad. We've got the world, even the world, even the world that doesn't know Jesus. Even the world who are, they've turned Christmas into an entirely secular affair. They know. 
instinctively, intuitively, they know that there's supposed to be beauty, joy, and wonder. And they do their very best to fill the void. There's supposed to be beauty, and the best they can come up with are decorations. There's supposed to be joy, and the best they can come up with is the temporary happiness that comes with the material gifts that happen on Christmas Day. And there's supposed to be wonder, and the best they can achieve is surprise. Oh, you didn't expect that gift. That's great. So instead of beauty, joy, and wonder, they have decorations, happiness, and surprise. But guess what? That never scratches the itch. It never fills the void. How do we restore these things? How can we regain the lost effects? The answer is found in these passages. In Luke 2.20, it says this, And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. In Matthew chapter 2, it says, And they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. In the common denominator in both of these passages is worship. These people had hearts toward God, hearts of worship. As we worship the Lord, as we glorify the Lord, God heals us. The, the blessing, there's a flow of the Holy Spirit. And that flow of the Holy Spirit is what Jeremiah calls the balm of Gilead. And that balm comes and it heals our inner being. And it restores a childlikeness to us. Now, I want to say something about childlikeness. There is no particular virtue in being childish. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, he says, When I was young, I thought like a child. I talked like a child. I reasoned like a child. But now, when I became a man, I put childish ways behind me. It's okay to put childishness behind you. There's some things about being a child that God wants us to outgrow, right? A child, here's the child as far as the child is concerned, and here is the whole of the created order revolving around that child. How how many know what I'm talking about? Like little kids, they just think the whole thing is about them. That's something God wants us to outgrow. So childishness is something we want to leave behind. But childlikeness is something we want to embrace. Jesus says you have to be like a child in order to receive the kingdom. Why do we reject childishness but embrace childlikeness? Because childlikeness is innocence. A child has faith more easily, flows in the gifts of the Holy Spirit more easily. I pray for a lot of people to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. You know who receives quicker than anybody? Children. They just receive. So childlikeness is something that we want. And when we worship, we can be restored in our childlikeness. The connection between beauty and joy and wonder and worship is not just pointed to in those texts. 
A good example, not the only one, but I just want to read this one. Psalm 96, starting in verse 6, says, Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. What does ascribe mean? Ascribe means give, that's right, it means give it to him. It means give him the credit for it. That's worshiping. That's glorifying God. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. That trembling is the trembling of wonder. This is the nature of worship. Worship restores us like nothing else. David in the Psalms, pours out his heart before God. He pours out his heart. There's this cry when he's in trouble. There's a place for that. There's a time for that. But I want to tell you what's going to restore and, and, and tune your receptors to be able to receive and apprehend the beauties of the Lord is worship, when you just glorify him. Now, let me, let me talk a little bit about worship. There's a lot that's called worship that isn't worship, that isn't biblical worship. There's a lot that's called worship. People, talk, people say, for example, there's almost a legal definition, right? We, we talk about houses of worship, right? We, we talk about worship services as if just going to that place and attending the service means that worship is happening there or worship is happening in me. That's not necessarily true. Right? Just being there doesn't mean that worship is going on. Not, not in the biblical sense. So people can call worship, well, I, you know, this is, this is worship for me. But, but the Bible is not silent, not by a long shot, of what God calls worship. And if you look at the text, the passages that we just read where these people worship, you get these magi along the, the line. They're, they're, you know, you got the old, the old song, We Three Kings, and even in the little drummer boy thing, it's like, well, you're a king. Uh, there's the, those words, there's no real evidence that they were kings, but they were certainly noble people and people of status. They're people of standing. They're people of wealth, right? They brought this, this, these, these wealthy gifts. And when they saw the Christ child, they threw themselves down before him. There's, there's a demonstration of what this is. So we've got things that are called worship, but there aren't so. And there's, there's a lot that is true worship, that is attacked as false. This is something I've mentioned before. It, I call it the Mikal spirit or the Mikal attitude. This is the story from the Old Testament where David is bringing in the ark and he is dancing with all his might before the Lord and Mikal is up in the window. She's Saul's daughter. She's David's wife. They went through a period of estrangement and now she's back. And she's looking down out of a window, and it says she despised him in her heart. And she couldn't 
wait. The second he got done with his worship, she couldn't wait to broadside him. Well, how you've distinguished yourself today. She couldn't wait to blast him. The Michal spirit. Scriptures are full of it. David's worship was pure and true. It might not have been the prettiest thing to look at, but it was pure and true, and she was attacking it. Um, let me share you a little bit about my journey in worship. When I was a kid, I was raised Roman Catholic, and by the time I kind of started to understand what was going on in church, it was in the 1970s, and uh, I was in western Michigan where I grew up, and western Michigan, uh, actually all of the state of Michigan and northern Indiana in particular were kind of hotbeds for the Catholic charismatic movement. How many have heard of that? Right, so this is where people uh, of, of high church, traditional Catholic, didn't just happen in the Catholic church, happened in the Anglican church, happened in the Lutheran church, happened in the different churches, where the Holy Spirit was just powerfully poured out. And that began to have an effect. It began to have a ripple effect. And I remember kind of that season where we went from having traditional music in the church, organ music, maybe piano, um, ju but just, just one person to having what they called a guitar mass. And uh, this is where you'd have a, a few people up there and they would have, I know it, it's hard to believe, but they had guitars in church, right? They had these acoustic guitars up there and they were playing those things like two or three of them at the same time. I mean, it was just, wow. And I remember, I was just an adolescent. I was just a, I was just a kid. But I, I have to admit something. I wasn't serving the Lord. And I wasn't interested in serving the Lord. And I had the Mikal spirit on me. I can remember after a few services like that, I walked away and I said, who do these people think they are? I mean, they act like they have some sort of, oh my goodness, they're always smiling. I mean, they're so gooey. I mean, they're always smiling and like, they're singing like, like they mean it. I mean, you know, like they're smiling before they get up there and then they get those guitars and they're like playing them. And then... They smile between the songs, and they're laughing, and they're happy, and they act like they have some sort of inside track with God that I don't have. How dare they? Um, they did have an inside track with God that I didn't have. It was called a surrendered spirit. They were able to perceive beauty, joy, and wonder and as a 12 and 13 year old kid I had already allowed my heart to become cynical I was raised in an intellectual home and I had allowed hard questions and all these discussions to kind of get to me and I got a big head over it and I just thought that's 
that's just um, below my dignity. 12, 13 years old, and that's below my dignity. It's, it doesn't have anything to do with how old you are. It doesn't have any, anything to do with the background you're from. It's, it's this choice that I was making. How many have been given a second chance by God? How many have been given a third chance? Fourth, fifth, how many are up to countless chances that God's given to you? Well, God was merciful to me, um, an arrogant kid, and um, he taught me how to worship. And I began to experience the freedom of worship when I came to the Lord, went into a church, saw people raise their hands, saw people sing like they meant it, singing with all their heart to the Lord. And uh, I began to enter into that and bless the Lord and enjoy that. So um, I want to tell you a story. Um, Around the time Patty and I, uh, I was watching her. Let me just put it that way. Um, we weren't dating yet, um, but I was watching her. her. Her husband had passed away, and she was a student in a class uh, that I was teaching at the church. And um, during this time, the pastor of the church was really trying to sell me on another girl. And she was from a good family. I think her brother-in-law was a deacon in the church. And, um, you know, she seemed well-to-do and, edu- you know, he just thought she had the pedigree, right? And so he, he, uh, he said, look, you really need to look at, the-. he was a terrible matchmaker. And his dad was, everybody's, they're just, just uh, you know, they wouldn't have peace if they weren't trying to do that. Match, match people up. And it, it just, I was a single pastor on staff, and that just wasn't going to work for him. And so he was going to work the situation. And, and so, you know, she's pretty and all that. But Patty, uh, Patty already had caught my attention. And, and so we were in church. Uh, was one Sunday night service. And the pastor, there's a move of the Holy Spirit during worship. There's just a move of the Holy Spirit. And... Um, the pastor gets up and he says, you know what? If you want to dance before the Lord, I want to invite you to come down here. This wasn't anything choreographed. It wasn't anything planned. Nobody was, it's just, he's just basically inviting a bunch of people to come down and jump for joy, right? That's all we're doing. We're just doing this sort of charismatic kangaroo bunny hop thing, you know, we're just jumping around, you know, we're just, he's, I mean, he basically invited us, just come down and jump around, you know, and, uh, so, man, I'm going down there and jumping around. And no, Chris, I'm not going to show you what it looked like. So, so he's provoked me before. And uh, so, uh, so we, we're going down. And, but see, I'm watching. I'm watching. Um, I'm, I'm watching this girl that the pastor is trying to sell me on. And I'm watching Patty. And... Uh, and this girl just sat there, pretty, but stiff as a poker. It's like a statue. She was not 
She might as well have been humming the old hymn, I Shall Not Be Moved. Boy, she is, she is says, I am just going to stay right here. I shall not be moved. And Patty, boy, she, boom, she makes a beeline down there. And um, I don't know how she did it. I mean, she was into aerobics, but, she, I mean, she had heels and, you know, she had a full-length skirt. She was just dressed like such a lady. And she was just dancing before the Lord. She was worshiping God. And I was like, sold. I'm off the market right there. Right? <laughs> Patty was going through significant grief and hurt. She'd been widowed a matter of months. You might even say weeks prior. But she was flow, she's always been a worshiper. My wife's always been a worshiper. And I'm a worshiper. Um and I believe God wants us to be worshipers. Amen? He wants us to be worshipers. What is worship about? Now, don't worry. Just relax. I'm not going to all call you down here to dance. Well, all right, might be a good idea. <laughs> the worship that restores is about abandon. It's about surrender. It's about yielding yourself. It's about humility. It's about not caring what anybody else thinks. It's about just letting yourself go in the presence of God. Do it privately. Do it publicly. Do it. Somebody who loses themselves into the Lord, who surrenders themselves into the Lord, is one that the Lord can reach in and deeply and profoundly touch. And when we do that, then we're able to experience wonder again. We're able to experience joy again and, and not just have, not just depend on happiness. You know the root word of happiness is the same as happenstance? It's just, it just... Sometimes you're happy and sometimes you're not. And there are people that live absolutely under the tyranny of their own emotions. Whichever way the wind's blowing, that's how they feel. They have the victory or they don't have the victory depending on whether the stock market is up or down. Or whether it's raining or not. That's a tough thing here in the Pacific Northwest. But when we anchor ourselves to God through worship through yielded, surrendered worship, and we love him, we bless him, we surrender ourselves to him, then God is able to do deep and profound things in us. Amen? I want to invite the musicians to come. <laughs> and I want us just where we are, just where you are, I, I, I want you to just, just raise your hands to the Lord. Just per, turn your palms face up. And just worship the Lord. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Jesus, we worship you. God, we worship you. We praise you. Hallelujah. God, you're so good. You're so good, Jesus. You're so good. You're so good. Hallelujah. Let the praise of God inhabit your mouth. Let the praise of God flow like a river in your heart. And sweep away all the debris that has hurt you, all the trophies of your defeats, all the trophies of your wounds and your pain and your disappointments. Everybody suffers them. You're not alone. 
but Jesus comes in the midst of your darkness. Oh, Jesus, we worship you. 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 We praise you. We glorify you. If you want to draw near to the Lord, I do invite you to come down front. Just come down front just as you are. And just stand before the Lord. Be willing to come and just make a spectacle of yourself before the Lord. Hallelujah. Jesus, we praise you. We praise you. We praise you. We praise you. We humble ourselves before you, Father. We make ourselves of no reputation before you. God, we seek you, God. We hunger and thirst for righteousness, Lord. We want you. We declare that we want you, Lord God. Make us your trophy, Lord, before angels as well as men, God. Make us your trophy. God, we want to live everything for your glory. Lay everything down for your glory. Sacrifice everything for your glory. And your praise.